Welcome to the Studio Musician Academy podcast. Today's guest is B. James Lowry. B. James is a Nashville-based guitarist, composer, and producer. He's sat in the coveted guitar chair on recordings for artists like Tim McGraw, Luke Bryan, Pretty Lights, Jewel, and even the Chipmunks. After getting his start as a touring sideman with some of the industry's biggest acts, B. James made a risky leap in burning his ships and moving into the session scene full-time. Trading a six-figure career to becoming a $50 per track demo player might sound insane, but his all-in bet eventually earned him a seat at the table amongst Nashville's most sought-after session players. In this episode, B. James shares stories from his journey. As we unpack his career path, creative approaches, and the equivalent of a master's in psychology, which is unofficially required to successfully navigate the red ocean of the recorded industry. Thank you for joining us for this incredible episode. We're excited for you to be a part of the Studio Musician Academy and hope these stories can help inspire you on your own unique creative journey. Let's dive in. So if you had a bumper sticker <laughs> on... What do you mean if? <laughs> the bumper sticker that, that, that you would put on your cartridge rig as they're rolling into the studio that makes the statement of what it takes to have a sustained career as a session player and gigging musician. What do you think that would say? I need a bigger truck, probably, right? <laughs> you need to understand intimately the singer-song relationship. What are some of the things that you did to develop your ear and mindset to be a song-focused musician? That's a great question. Um, I was fortunate, going back to early days, my first guitar teacher was actually an incredible bebop guitar player. And I think he was somewhat disappointed that all I wanted to do was play rock and roll and, you know, and funk and R&B. But he taught me ear training. And to this day, I don't have perfect pitch, but I have relative pitch as it relates to guitar. Um, was there a specific uh, practice or like process for that sp that type of ear training? That I you had to you? sing the notes to know how they were connected as well as know them on the guitar neck. Mm -hmm. And anytime I would cheat, he would know it. He sent me home one night and I had a little, little uh, bit of homework to do. And I didn't study that week. And I got back to my lesson the following week. And he said, so what'd you learn, man, this week, you know? And uh, he was a pretty meager guy you know with like a little pencil thin mustache holding his guitar kind of like this you know like the like the old school guys did you yeah. know but could just blow your mind by how amazing he could play so i kind of hinted around you know what i thought i was looking at and he said okay let me play that for you he said what how it should really sound and it was twinkle twinkle little star a little star disguised as a as another uh, title and he said you need to get better at learning theory and learning you know learning how to read at least a little bit and uh, so we did modes and scales and those kind of things. And, and um, so that's really where my ear training, as well as some more technical things, started out. I loved um, breaking down, you know, records that I, that I liked from the time I was probably 11, 12 years old. When you're dissecting a song, were you just kind of playing along to it and, and just kind of learning the chords and the rhythm? Yeah. Or were I you mean, like breaking down each individual in part? The, in the beginning, like most people, like you, just, you just wanted to learn the changes of the song. But something you just said, voicing became very important to me. The more of this that I did, what was happening against where the singer was and my voicing and how it contrasts to where they are, not to fight, not to compete, you know, and those were, I actually learned that pretty early on because I, I was already past the trying to learn guitar the proper way, you know, I mean, I was basically a failed student, you know, probably by my <laughs> my uh, aforementioned teachers. But I took a lot of that, what he, what he taught me, and I was able to apply it because then I knew how everything connected. So when did you start thinking about uh, being a musician a as a career? Probably 15. 
16. And, mm-hmm. But I wasn't playing guitar at that time because everybody in my town, or group in a Navy town, for whatever reason, there were just guitar players everywhere. So I actually learned how to play bass and drums. I was also being pulled in this direction of having a Navy career because I went to school with so many Navy brats, and that's, that's just kind of what you did. Were your parents into that, or did they my have a vision played. for you to— My, da- my father was um, um, a musician, a weekender, you know, and he got it. And I think uh, he, he just wanted me to be successful at whatever I did. Was there anyone around you growing up that sort of gave you the impression that, yeah, this is really cool, this fun hobby that you have, you know, playing guitar, but this, you got to figure out what your job is going to be or you got to have a fallback plan or you know. everybody. So for you, there, there wasn't ever like a second guessing or a, maybe I should listen to them and think about another backup plan kind of option just in case this you know dream doesn't work out i mean you're in your teens no not right. not really right i mean yeah <laughs> you, you're going to go out and conquer the world yeah. whether you do or you don't some of that came later you know once i actually got up here and i realized oh wow you were a hometown hero down there but up here it's you and everybody else you know and how are you going to make this work and that really became the case for me once i got off touring after touring about 10 years with headline acts had built up a you know, I think a good, solid reputation at that time. I had no idea what I was getting into and just how difficult it would be to break into this side of the business. But I didn't have any of the skill set you needed uh, to be working in a studio. I mean, I was pretty bad those first uh, probably three years when I was going after it hard. But mm-hmm. that was a lesson I learned from that. You know, you think you know until you find out you don't know what you don't know. So when you're in that process where you have that Obviously, you're younger, you're taking the step, you're jumping right. in, you're diving full steam ahead. Then you get kicked in the face and you realize, wow, this is not, uh, there's, there's a bunch of other people that just moved to town today that are this, have the same path as I did, that, that grew up, wouldn't leave their room, playing their instrument. They're, they're going to do this. They're going to make it happen. And we all just got to town together and we're yeah. all going after the same opportunity. That's right. Was there any sort of um, internal kind of mindset or practice that, you feel like that you used or discovered that helped you stay focused and optimistic? My confidence in myself was probably the strongest asset I had. The people that are saying, you'll never do that, or no, you can't do that. Those are your greatest allies. You just don't know it at the time. I was very competitive with myself. Mm -hmm. And that's the key thing, not with other people, but with myself, because I knew that my drive would you know, I had to rely on that. So was was there ever a moment in those early years of being in Nashville where you thought, I don't know if this is going to work out and you had to take some sort of action to really push yourself through through that kind of roadblock or an experience that you had that made you feel like, ah, I don't know if I can make this happen? Well, confidence, I mentioned aside, I mean, clearly you're going to have doubts, you know, when, when uh, the times are slow. Most of us have been there where you don't quite know where to start you maybe don't know anyone to kind of help you break into, you know, maybe my path is going to be different than someone else's. And, and I just have to, you know, how I approach this is going to be different from everyone else. And I know it was for me, but you don't always know where to start. But whoever said it, I'm not the author of it, but whoever said you just have to start. Understand that you may not have the answer today, but you may meet the exact right person you need to tomorrow i think the universe provides these things if you once again you have the right mindset about you know what you're trying to accomplish you got to be you got to be vested in the the journey mm-hmm. um not just an out a given outcome yeah so what yeah. brought you to nashville 
I actually had a, a touring job that um, really kind of popped up out of the blue originally. That led to, of course, a string of probably 10 years of almost nonstop touring with a variety mm -hmm. of acts. I was replicating someone else's music. I wasn't creating anything. Probably midstream of that touring career, I knew there was another place for me. When you make a choice in one area, you're giving up another choice. That artist that you're working for, you're tied at the hip and, and, and you you really have to, if you're comfortable with that, it's great. And I was for many years. Making that jump also allows you to have a lot of diversity because you're working with different people, different artists, you know, if you become successful. And I was always craving that, you know, because life on the road, great as it can be, it can also become this grind. And, and it's it's really you know, you're kind of getting paid to travel. You're not really getting paid to play music. Put it this way, when you're doing 225 days a year, like I was, you know, mm. 250 maybe, you're kind of in a vacuum. So for someone that is that is on the road, as they're doing that, they're building relationships. They're getting a lot of experience learning a lot of different songs yeah. and learning how to uh, copy something, which can be a skill to have oh, um, because oh, it's definitely. building those, yep. those, um, those instincts that you can pull from. Yeah. But the challenge can be sometimes that, as you mentioned, every night you're replicating someone else's part as opposed to creating your own. So then creatively making that switch can be a little tough. You find yourself with an opportunity to be on a session and the spotlight is on you to figure out something on the spot that is going to sound like a hit. For someone that wants to prepare themselves to move into the studio, what sort of things would you recommend someone kind of work on or, or keep in mind to not get too stuck in, in the the job of the replication and prepare themselves to be question. able to do the creation. The great question. Uh, I, I would answer it by saying this because now it's within the roots of everyone and it's affordable. What I wish I had have had at the time, get yourself a pro tools rig because, it, because you, and, and take it on the road with you and just learn about recording in your hotel room. I discovered I wasn't near as good as I thought I was whenever there's a, a, a microscope that's placed on my parts, you know, my, my vibrato, my touch, um, some of those things. That's the great thing about recording. It's a gr it is an equalizer, the greatest equalizer to how you really sound. It does not lie. So if you can record yourself in your hotel room, have a little Pro Tools rig, man, I mean, I would have loved to have had that at the time. Plus, it would have helped take up a lot of the downtime. So you mentioned that you spent quite a while touring before you made the decision to step into focusing more primarily on the studio work as you were thinking about it, as you made that transition right. for you, was it a, okay, I'm retired from touring now. I'm going to focus solely on sessions or was it a slower transition in, in your mind? How did you, how did you figure out a way to make that transition? I don't recommend anybody do it like I did it um, because that was very difficult at that time. And, and those dollars, I mean, that was upwards of a 90,000 plus a year job. I reached out to songwriters I, that I'd uh, known that were buddies of mine and said, hey, I'm getting off the road. You know, when you can't get the, the person you normally use, will you consider calling me, you know, to plan your demos? And, and they were all going, well, yeah, man, if you're going to be available, of course. And I became the, uh, this is no lie, I became the $50 a song demo king uh -huh. for two years, both acoustic and electric guitar. 
had a little direct rig I was carrying around, mm -hmm. two electric guitars, and that's what I did for two years. The Studio Musician Academy was created to make expert mentorship available to every musician who is passionate about making a living with their instrument. Through sharing the lessons we've learned on our journey, we hope to provide you with the resources to blaze your own trail. We'd love to invite you to join the band and check out our training sessions at studiomusicianacademy.com. We have a deep catalog of exclusive bonus content that is free for band members as well as complete training sessions for many of our guests. Join the band today for free at studiomusicianacademy.com. Were there any specific things that you remember sort of like light bulb moments in discovering how to improve a tone for recording purposes versus live? I couldn't play as loud. So many of the ISO booths are, they're not that large. It's rare that you get set up like in a room this big, I love it when you can. If you're pushing out the kind of volume you push out on uh, tour stage volume, it's going to have a diminishing return in a small ISO boot. On acoustic guitar, everyone has a different vibrato. It, it, you and me, you get 10 guitar players in here and we play the same riff. Everybody's going to have a slightly different take on it. The acoustic guitar players that I was uh, working with at the time, I went, oh my gosh, man, these guys are... How do you play that quiet? How do you play without any noise? You understand a lot more about playing arpeggios that really flowed. Electric, electric guitar can be pretty darn forgiving. You have to be more conscientious about evenness of, your, of the amplitude of the notes. The note duration, I think, is much more critical. Those were the adjustments I really had to make because electric guitar, once you, I just think it's a little more forgiving. So How did you start to improve that balance of the note duration on an acoustic guitar? Yeah, you've got a B flat here, you know, on a, on fret three, let's say, a G string. You've also got it up here on, on the D string, but they sound so much different, man. I mean, the amplitude mm -hmm. of the note, the, that the volume of the note, and where you decide to play, you that arpeggio from the arpeggio if you you'll play it if it's a triad you'll play it out of the most um you can either play it out of the simplest or you can play it sometimes from out of the best location to what sounds best don't have too much of an opinion about oh, okay this is an arpeggio triad and this is how i play it let your ear be be the guide because for, as far as that goes you should have an opinion how does this make you feel? So when it comes to getting quieter with transitions, it sounded like you were saying that too, is another thing on acoustic. Were there any technical things that you kind of discovered that helped you not make as much noise as you're moving around the neck? Some of it was actually related to equipment, what guitars that uh, feel good to you. Certain instruments I've played with certain strings, certain picks, that's not just a technique thing. You have to know what feels good in your hands. One of the wonderful yep. things about music is that there aren't any rules and that every path can be different. So recognizing that when you're hearing advice from someone like yourself that's sitting up here with decades of experience and a really incredible resume, that your path works for you, your exact that exact path may not work for for someone else and definitely is not right. going to work for everyone. Right. Most of the guys and girls I know that, that, that this is their vocation and their profession, our paths are different. They're similar. There's no carbon copy way to do this. I would not recommend anyone do what I did on a financial level at the time. It was really dumb financial planning to leave a great paying job to throw yourself but I, but I, into something that was unknown. I, I was willing to burn my ships, if you will. I have a thirst for knowledge. And, and at that time, I knew there was so much I didn't know, but I wasn't going to get it where I was. So the only way I could do that was... You have to go through some pain.
in a lot of ways, for most people, I feel like some level of that type of, of risk and decision is absolutely necessary to be successful at a high level. Because at some point that's you're going to have to make this. You're going to have yeah. to make the sacrifice, and that it doesn't matter what what the job is. In if it's something where you're responsible for your career, because as soon as you give yourself that backup plan, at some point it's going to become easier to do that, and you're leaving that opportunity open. So I'm a firm believer in in, in actually you? suggesting to do what you did, but I would would say that it's not for everyone, and you have to be very clear and honest with yourself. Am I willing to take that risk? Am I willing to go after this for the possibility that it can lead to what I'm going for? And am I okay with the the possibility yeah. that what my idea right. of success is may never happen? And will I still be fulfilled yeah. in the process of getting there because I feel so called to do this? Yeah, it is an entrepreneurial pursuit. I mean, you're, a, you're like a one-person startup company. The general rule of business, however long you think it will take, it's going to take you twice as long. And I can tell you from my experience, at least, it was exactly that. I figured in a couple of years, I'll probably have this established. I'll be in, and it was four years if it was a day. It's like whatever the whatever the joke is about the um, about the breakfast. You know, when you look at a, a plate of eggs and bacon, right? That tells you the difference between involvement and commitment. The chicken was involved. The pig was committed because people were still calling to go out on tour with me, you know, and I had to go, man, I, I can't, man. I, I have to stay where I am. I have to be committed, not involved. I have to be committed. You know, it was very tempting at the time, especially when it was so lean this first couple of years. You could be listening to any podcast in the world, but right now you're here with us and we want to thank you for listening. We created this community to make expert mentorship available to every musician who is passionate about making a living doing what they love. Do you know someone who would enjoy this podcast? If so, we'd be grateful if you could hit that share button and spread the good word on the Studio Musician Academy. If you're not part of the band yet, you can grab your free account today at studiomusicianacademy.com. Thank you for listening. Now back to the show. At the end of the line in, uh, in creating music, there is a consumer. I think the secret to a long career being a session musician is if you can make people feel something. If they feel that in the room, the artist feels it, the producer feels it, or the songwriter feels it, there's a pretty good chance that the consumer is going to feel it too and that you, you've really contributed a lot to that recording. Mm -hmm. That's easier said, said than done. No question about it, my friend. Is it more about making yourself feel something that then someone else can feel? Or is it learning what moves people within when they hear something yeah how do you start to internalize what will make someone feel something i think it's a question of influence how does that song influence you when you're listening to a demo in turn what are you going to do to influence that song you know reading through your chart you know kind of making your notes how's it what's it doing to you as a musician but also as a music listener you can tell the impact that it has on the producer and the and the artist you pretty much know the stuff they love about uh they'll be vocal about it if you don't know but uh let's say hey b james we really you know we really like this guitar part and, and you know okay i get why they like it and, and for the reasons why you may forget what people said to you right when you meet someone but you'll never forget the way they made you feel you have two things that you know regardless of what you're playing regardless of what music you're you're working on 
regardless of what the vision is from um, the people that you're working with. Music is very subjective because taste is very subjective. You know when you play it, and you know with the reaction that you get. You have to know how to read a room, and that's in everything, mm -hmm. your communication, skills. What do you do in a case where you're not really feeling the song? You got to pull something Why, that never out happens, it, you know? Gio. <laughs> it's easy to forget to just breathe. It just brings everything down to a, a calmness and a level where you're not quite trying so hard. When I experience what you just described, it's usually because I'm trying too hard. You'll find something that will work because you've been here before. Most of the time, music is, it's all derivative. You've lived in this movie just with different actors and directors before. In many cases, you know, when you play a song, I think many times you'll, by not being over analytical, you'll find some of your absolute best takes. I've, I've played on plenty of them, certainly, and other, and other guys and girls have too. There's a glue magic that happens with everybody, you know, some days. And I think it's in the ether, truthfully, you know. Uh, yeah, I think you've become too analytical about it and too technical about it. It defeats trying to describe it. We experience days like that. I'll promise you this. It makes the other days all worth it. What I hear within that is the idea of focus on what you can control and allow the things that you can't control to be what they are. Yeah. Not try to take too much control over things at first to allow the experience and the song and the other people in the, in the environment that are creating yeah. it with you right. to allow all of those things to just kind of work together and marinate a little bit. You got to quiet that internal internal dialogue. It, 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 it can be your undoing. Uh, sometimes it can be your greatest ally, but you got to know when you have to kind of quiet that. So one of the things that I've read you talk about is, is the importance, value, and, and also kind of fulfillment out of bringing something signature to a song. What sort of things have you developed that allow you to be able to walk into a session, hear a song, right. and then start to discern what is that signature element that, that, that I can bring into this and how do you, how do you get to that, that place? Something that the singer does that you'll hear on that demo that they're playing. To me, the melodic content, if I'm creating something on an intro, many times comes from that. Not just maybe the essence of a, a melody that they're singing later on, but to capture the essence of how they're feeling. You can use the title Red Velvet, and a singer can sing that title, for instance. You know, they can sing it angry, they can sing it happy, they can be depressed, they can be pissed off, they can be, there's so many different ways. And I think when you create a signature part, it's the very same thing. So I try and mirror something probably melodically that's happening with, um, that I maybe heard the singer do later in uh, the song. Uh, it may even be in the same register because then there's a direct line. There's almost like a memory line to when the singer gets to that that point down uh, down in the song that's related to what you played when, in fact, what you played originated from something you heard them do, you know, a phrase, even a phrasing thing. It can be that. Mm -hmm. The hardest things, of course, are whenever, like just a set of ones on your chart. Well, create something signature over this. You know, it's like, well, man, it's like there's no melodic information here, you know, or no, or, and no harmonic content. Those are when you really got to dig deep. I just did a record this week. All they wanted in the intro is just a, a drone. It can be lots of minutia, lots of detail, or it can be really simple. And if you're wrong, 
Someone's going to step in and they're, 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 they're going to tell you. But once again, man, it's so subjective. Here's a really simple example. Not that long ago, I was working on a rock, rock project. They wanted eighth notes. We all know what eighth notes are, right? Mm-hmm. You know, classic, uh, it was uh, a classic uh, 120 beats per minute, you know, get a little heartbeat. So I'm playing, 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 you know, we're, we're doing good. You know, tracks rolling, you know, uh, everybody seems happy. I stopped the track and, and the producer goes, Hey, B. James, man, uh, no, I was thinking like, you know, like eighth notes. I'm going, okay, I'm, I mean, so it, yeah, right? He said, no, 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 eighth notes. You know, like Green Day, eight, eighth notes. I'm going, ah, eighth notes. So that, so what that tells me, once again, is subjective to him. Eighth notes were short downstrokes with, meaning downstrokes with short note duration. So it's really subjective, man, sometimes in the, but that was the signature and that's what they wanted. But until mm-hmm. he made that reference, I'm thinking probably more in the way that you would think when someone asked you to do that. Well, you made it this far. So I'm guessing you're probably either asleep or hopefully enjoying the conversation. If you haven't joined the band yet, there's a free account waiting for you at studiomusicianacademy.com. But that's not all. Since you're still here with us, we'd love to offer you a podcast fan discount on any individual learning session or full catalog subscription on studiomusicianacademy.com. Just use the code podcast to check out. Sorry for the interruption. Now let's get back to it. When you're thinking about the other elements, other instruments in the room, are there any common sort of thoughts that go through your mind to make sure that you're vibing well? So I mentioned that I really started out playing bass and drums, right? So to this day, what in talking about influence, what influences me uh, and what I play, actually to this day, you might think, oh, you're a guitar player. So, you know, you know first thing you hear is going to be guitar tones, um, you know, feel parts, whatever on a recording. Not the case at all. I always hear bass first and foremost. Uh, and, and, and bass is... What identifies for me a lot of what I'm going to play, probably my attack to uh, how I make my transition changes. If there's a signature bass part and it's hooky, you don't have to maybe fill up as much space as you as you would when there's less notes being played. Does what the bass is playing or where it's playing change the way that you voice chords? Even though your octaves apart, I, I do think you can get into competing um, sonic areas. So if you start playing, you know, uh, open tunings and things like I I tend to do and even tune down half step, whole step, you got to be mindful where the bass is because I mean, it it can be in areas that, you know, they're, they're not sub octaves, you know, anything Mm -hmm. like that, but they can be competitive. So looking back on the amazing career that you've had and that you've continued and that you continue to have now, if there was something that you could tell yourself back then, what what would you what would you tell that person that's trying to make it happen for oh, themselves? Man. Don't be so focused on precision that you do not allow yourself wiggle room to maybe play on the edge of your ability. I think that's a mistake. For me, that's what I would probably do different because one of the great things about music, man, and the the timeless recordings in music. When you really go back and and you listen to things, if they're still playing, they're going to be playing thirty years from now. There was a certain danger element i worked so hard at the precision side of my playing the downside to that was i took some of the raw edge 
out of my playing. I've actually come back full circle again because every now and then you're going to jump on the edge of your ability if you're not so focused on everything being just so pristine all the time. That's when you're going to make some really quantum leaps mm-hmm. in um, your what you're contributing to a recording. I've had people send me demos that I played on uh, during those formative years. Somebody sent me a demo not that while, not that long ago. They said, "Man, sounds like you were cutting a David Bowie record." And I listened to it. I didn't al- didn't even almost recognize my playing because it had still had all the edges on it. Well, I think one of the things that's important to have a sustaining career in this industry and in any side of the glass or occupation is the ability to continue to succeed regularly. And so I think what can happen is that we have that success a few times and yeah. we look at it and say, well, what made this thing successful? Let's try to replicate that, which has been the challenge of the music industry Hello. in general is that Hello, then, right. that can, yeah. then that can really go over the top. You mean that really happens? So, yeah. So it's yeah. a really great reminder to, to go back to those early stages when you didn't have as much of an understanding about what works and what doesn't work, or maybe you didn't have as much of an opinion about what works and what doesn't work. And it came more from just gut reaction and yeah. feeling. Yeah. So you were more unbridled with what you were doing. And, and I know for, for me, like engineering and producing there, there's pro- there were, there were probably things where I was just getting more creative. Sometimes it was because of lack of equipment and ability to, to you have to get creative because there's the sound in your head, but I don't have all the tools at my disposal to create right, it. So yeah, what can, yeah. what crazy combination of things can I plug together to make it sound exactly. like what I'm hearing in my head? But then once you have all of those tools and, 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 and you have this efficient process in the system and you've had enough success for that for, to have figured out a little bit of a formula about how it works, then we can unfortunately get stuck in that and allow yeah. that to become a little bit too much of the focus because now that becomes comfortable. We were so unsure before, which was part of the mystery and the fun and excitement about it. But then you're like, well, I got to make a career and I got to sustain this career. And how am I going to one up the last success that I had? So what did I, what did I learn from the last thing that worked? Well, I guess let's you know, try it here. Even if it's subconscious, it's just, we allow ourselves to do it. Yeah. So I love yeah. your suggestion of just kind of going back to that original raw feeling of not really knowing what's going to happen and just go after it. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that you're, that you're, you're flying blind and then you don't have a map. I'm not, not right. saying that at all. What I will say, however, is that, uh, this is one small example. Um, if I'm doing a solo, I don't even want to look at a chart. I know what it is in my head. I don't have to look at the chart. And, and what it does, it gives me the opportunity to play more like I'm in a band. You know, that's very genre specific. And once again, that usually works more on rock and roll stuff. I'm actually doing a project next week, uh, with a guy from Los Angeles, Nick Angeles. And it's that way. Man, this has been an incredible conversation. I appreciate you so much for taking the time. Thank to do you, this. man. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. Great here thing you're doing here. And very I'm, inspired. Well, thank you.